Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Episode 13, Vault Comics. Right then, hello there. Welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name is Leonard Sultana, and uh, each and every Sunday, and for the duration of lockdown two here in the UK, on a Wednesday as well, we talk comics, comic cons, and all the stuff and nonsense we get to enjoy at such shows. Um, this has been an eventful week. I certainly wanted to start today by uh, acknowledging uh, that here in the UK, it's Remembrance Day. Uh, it's also the uh, 65th anniversary of uh, victory in uh, Europe. I attended at a very long distance a memorial service this morning, and I want to show acknowledgement to those that are serving, that have served and indeed have given their lives for our personal liberties and freedoms, which uh, certainly in uh, the States you have been celebrating this week and over the last couple of weeks as uh, you prepared for the uh, U.S. elections. Obviously, the uh, results of those are going to be contested, uh, so the, that's a story which is ongoing. Uh, but hopefully you put your flag to the mast and uh, you made your vote known, uh, because the only way to, of course, be part of a conversation is to be part of a conversation. So uh, that's what's been happening this week. But um, what's been happening this year, of course, has been tumultuous, uh, to say the least, for uh, a whole number of uh, industries. Uh, for comics, it's been one of real ebb and flow, real shifting sands. Um, but there have been a couple of uh, publishers and a couple of creators out there that have continued to strive to put incredible books on the shelves. And that's what we're going to be celebrating uh, today uh, because we have ourselves uh, three incredible uh, creators. Oh, certainly uh, the publishers and editors and uh, uh, the press as well of, of Vault Comics. We are going to be uh, bringing uh, to you right now the publisher, the editor-in-chief, and indeed di the director of press and marketing for uh, Vault Comics. We'd like to welcome first and foremost, let's start with Damien. Hello there, Damien. How are you, sir? Very well. How are you? Fine, thank you. And I'm we have our today than I was uh, some 30 hours ago, that's for sure. <laughs> well, yes. Um, I'm 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 curious what your hang. I will be asking what your hangovers are like. Whether you have been celebrating or if it's still a case of. I mean, I think we kind of touched on this just before we came on air. It's still very much um, something that can be debated by uh, uh, parties in in in, in discussion. Uh, but uh, thank you very much indeed for joining us. We're also joined by editor in chief Adrian Wessel. How are you doing, sir? Uh, doing pretty well this morning. I uh, yeah I'm. I'm had a bit of health issues the last couple of weeks and I'm feeling a lot better and super excited to be on the show, feeling good, ready to talk some comics. So, And um, we've also got director of sales and marketing and I tried the surname when I spoke to Dan Waters and I thought I'd got it right and I no doubt got it wrong. So we'll see where it goes. I want to say David uh, Disaniaki. Close, Disaniaka. <laughs> <laughs> Very close. We're always at the end where it all tails off. Yep. That's where it's <laughs> there we go. Um, welcome along, uh, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to have you uh, coming along. Uh, we have ourselves a whole bunch of people who are jumping in already and saying hi. Like I say, we, 
we had uh, John Bivens uh, go team vault absolutely hey, um, so uh, Kevin Scott joining us as well hello chaps uh, hey, Kevin. Yeah, we'll hopefully be having uh, coming on uh, an episode uh, in the near future. We're kind of getting our timetable sorted out as we speak. Uh, and John Bivens uh, is saying, uh, glad you're feeling better. Uh, so, yes, um, everyone wishing you all the very best and uh, welcoming you along. Uh, the way I've been doing the shows um, up to now is I have been um, introducing with uh, three questions. Uh, so I think we'll start with this one. Uh, just to say that my cup of tea is a big cup of tea, but it's Yorkshire tea. Uh, and it is my beverage of choice today. What is your choice of beverage you have with you today? What is your cup of tea today? We'll go around. Uh, who's got uh, There's Adrian got his um, mug up already. Who's that? What's that, sir? Uh, it's uh, Earl Grey Blue, which is Earl Grey with uh, corn flowers and a little bit of vanilla bean. And uh, it's one oh. of my favorites. A little local uh, tea place makes it here in in our town. So I, I love this tea. So it's one of my favorites. I'm one of the few Americans that drinks tea, not coffee. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, coffee is my personal kryptonite. I, I cannot do it. Uh, Neither can I. <laughs> I'll, I'll drink all day. Uh, Damien? I'm a coffee in the morning, tea in the <laughs> afternoon kind of creature. For me, and I know this makes me somewhat unusual, but I simply can't drink tea on an empty stomach. Uh, coffee is fine. So I'm drinking some locally roasted coffee from uh, our favorite coffee shop, Drum, here in Missoula, Montana. Excellent stuff. And David, what's your beverage of choice this morning? So at the moment, I have um, some OJ, some orange juice here. But uh, this morning, I did have some tea, actually. Normally, I'm a coffee guy, but um, I'm here at my parents' house in Boston. I'm helping them out with some stuff. And they are tea drinkers. Uh, and my father is from Sri Lanka. He goes there relatively frequently, so he brought back some um, really incredible um, uh, English breakfast tea from Sri Lanka, which you know a lot of it is grown there. Um, so I had some of that this morning, and it was it was nice to have like a really good cup of tea again. Just gonna say, you got it from the source. That's yeah. what we like to say. Fantastic, excellent. Uh, I was question really hoping, David, that you were gonna say, now I'm drinking orange juice, but earlier I was drinking screwdrivers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, I I can imagine, like I say, the hangovers. Uh, for the last 24 hours have been immense. Uh, so, yeah, I can imagine. Uh, the second question I've uh, been putting to my guests are, uh, what's your do you, your memories of your first comic convention that you went to? Seeing as this is ostensibly a uh, Comic-Con podcast show, uh, yeah, your first ever Comic-Con that you went to, uh, if you went as a pro or as a, as a fan, if you can remember the first one that you stepped through the door. Um, Damien? So I think probably the answer to the first comic convention for Adrian and me is going to be the same. So maybe I can tell you about our first and then Adrian can tell you about the second or something. <laughs> but uh, the first comic convention I ever went to was as, as an exhibitor. It's a show that unfortunately no longer exists, but used to be part of the trio of shows operated by uh, Comic-Con International, a little show called ah. Ape in San Francisco, the Alternative Press Expo. Uh, it was a sort of one-room convention, still to date, featuring the best convention food I've ever had anywhere because it was just a bunch of push carts from local San Francisco food vendors. Uh, I had, you know, one of the best pupusas I've ever had in my life there. And it was, a, you know, genuinely a pretty charming, welcoming affair with a lot of independent creators showing off work in, you know, early stages and for us, this was 
you know, we didn't even have a finished book yet. We had some some pages of, of some books that long predate Vault from when we were uh, creating our own graphic novels. And that was um, the first time we realized maybe there was a an opportunity to, you know, do something special in this medium because the reception we got there was uh, affirming to say the least. I, th I think that's an ideal, I mean, people talk about going to San Diego to kind of make a big splash, but because it's such a big pond, I can imagine it's very difficult to make an impact if you are just getting started with Ape. Um, it's very much about the creators. It's about the creative um, strands. It it kind of shaves away all of the, um, the detritus of uh, what would be a larger con. And I can imagine it would be a great place to... Uh, to make an impression also to kind of get the word out to people who really know and love the, the comics industry. Did yeah, I mean, that was certainly how we felt about it. Uh, at the time, you know, it was, it's everyone tables there. There's no such, when there was a show, there was no such thing as a booth. There was no big setup process. You just went in and you put some books on, on the table uh, or your art on the table or the game that you were working on on the table as the case might be for each individual exhibitor. And it was really a question of whether uh, the work could rise to the level of someone's attention rather than a question of whether you could hang a big enough banner from the ceiling or, or you know, get the right A-list actor to come sign autographs. And so ultimately, uh, I've never attended another show that was more about the work people were doing and less about the work their marketing teams were doing it might be yeah um i think also as well i mean like you say it's something that was part of the uh, the comic-con um uh, the the the, the, the comic-con landscape the san diego comic-con landscape um what do you think uh, is where it's uh, kind of mutated into uh, like uh, uh, events like sam um, and the and also like WonderCon, those slightly smaller shows which uh, Comic Con International have put on. I mean, is it something that you think has uh, kind of taken that audience and that kind of creative um, juices uh, into the other shows? You know, I have to say, I think there's a pretty big lacuna in the convention scene left behind after Ape was shut down. So. I adore small regional conventions. We've done a show in, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota called Supercon many times, and it's a genuine delight. Um, we are fans of that show on this on here. But Supercon is principally a regional show in its attendance, whereas Ape attracted attendees from all over the country and nonetheless maintained this sort of intimate setting and focus on the work. And, you know, you can gesture to WonderCon as a smaller show, but, you know, the, the fact of the matter is WonderCon's still 10 times larger a show in both attendance and number of exhibitors than Ape was. And so the, you know, this, Ape was like a singular, it was like a library convention, right? Like you went and you could talk to everyone, but the people that came were nonetheless, you know, uh, amazing, amazing talent. I mean, when we were at Ape, uh, Jonathan Hickman was, you know, just a few tables down from us the entire time we were there, right? And then we got to meet and interact with him at the first show we ever went to, so. Excellent stuff. Uh, David, uh, first Comic-Con for you, sir. 
Uh, it was actually San Diego, <laughs> as a matter of fact. Uh, it was overwhelming. This was before I worked in the industry. Um, I was still, you know, deep into comics. Um, and it was a wild experience. You know, I, I knew it was big. It was right as movies started to become a, a bigger deal there. I think it was the year that Scott Pilgrim was uh, the movie, uh, was sort of like the big focal point for for Comic-Con. Um, and I had a blast. You know, um, I actually really enjoy San Diego um, for the most part. Um, yeah, that was my f that was my first show. It was it was a lot of fun. Excellent. And the third question I uh, usually finish on are uh, when you've been to a con, um, there's often those moments when you've uh, met a hero, met someone who's influenced your work, um, and they've tried across your table or you've crossed theirs, and um, suddenly the brain just leaps five foot to the left, and you end up being a little bit cotton mouth uh, and a bit weak in the knees. Um, has there been anyone in particular that you can uh, mention that has left you just a little bit uh, unsteady when uh, talking to them. Damien. Oh, I'm up first again. You're up first. Again. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I'm sort of constitutionally indisposed to be starstruck. Um, and so I think rather than having been awed most by heroes that I've met at conventions, the experience for me has been uh, maybe the inverse of that, having been awed most by people who have been touched by the work that we make. Um, I'll, I'll never forget the first San Diego Comic-Con we exhibited at. We had eight-page previews of a number of books that would be coming the subsequent year from, from Vault. Um, this was the first San Diego Comic-Con we exhibited at as Vault. We had done it before, so we were aware of the sort of scope and intensity of the thing. And in a quiet moment, uh, a woman came by our table and she looked at the covers arrayed there, picked up everything and said, you know, these look like my niece. I'm taking them back to her. And, you know, <laughs> the little moments like that where we've had people connect with the work that we do because um, they feel seen or represented or engaged with in a way that maybe they haven't elsewhere uh, have really stuck with me over the years. That's a good story. That's well put. Uh, Adrian, same drill, or um, is there anyone that's kind of uh, crossed your paths which uh, has left you not for six? Uh, I was definitely starstruck um, when Shelley Bond came up to our table, I think our first year of uh, Books on Shelves, and told me that I had been doing a wonderful job as an editor and that she loved everything we put out because Shelley was an editorial hero of mine. Um, still is. And so for that to be one of the first conversations I got to have uh, sort of a year into running a line, a catalog of uh, yeah. comics was pretty impressive and very, um, yeah, I was definitely starstruck. It was a wonderful conversation. And I think I managed to, you know, comport myself all right. And Shelly didn't realize quite how <laughs> shaky I was, but I was, uh, it was it was definitely a meet your hero moment and then have them praise your work, which was <laughs> unexpected and wonderful. I think also the benefit of uh, talking to uh, to Shelley and I've, I've had this experience myself. Um, if you do find yourself a little bit intimidated or just kind of starstruck with Shelley, she'll just pack, pick up the baton anyway and just run with the conversation. And she's got so much energy and just kind of uh, will just 
pick up the uh, the conversation, and keep going, which is very cool. absolutely. Uh, yeah, she saved me. <laughs> from- <laughs> <laughs> uh, David, for yourself, um, anyone that's kind of uh, left you uh, unsteady. Uh, there have definitely been, you know, comic stars that I've I've met that, um, you know, I had that first initial uh, reaction of like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm talking to this this person. Like, try to keep it together, but I like I try to just you know interact with with folks like that just as regular human beings, you know, <laughs> instead of a, a star. And I think it just lends itself to you know uh, having a, a a real conversation, you know, and it by treating them like a regular human being, I think you um, just sort of put yourself on uh, like an even field with them. But I will say uh, I met Karen Berger. Um, I think it was either last year or the year before. Um, uh, we chatted briefly. Um, she probably wouldn't remember it, but uh, you know, much like I think most people, you know, in comics, like a lot of, a lot of folks like discovered the medium through the work that she edited. So it was a, a very cool sort of full circle experience to have gotten into comics by reading all of those er- early Vertigo works and then having a conversation, uh, you know, with uh, a fellow professional. <laughs> it was, it was fun, but I think I kept it together pretty well. <laughs> I mean, I think from, I, I, for myself, I don't think I've ever answered this question whenever I put it forward. So I think, Certainly one way that I find to kind of break the ice, um, I, I found, um, is what you do is you get them to get pissed off with you. Um, a, f- <laughs> a, friend of my, a friend of mine um, was needing uh, the telephone number of Darwin Cook uh, for an interview that he was going to be hosting with him a couple of days down the line. He was tied up with doing interviews. He said, can you just go and get Darwin's telephone number? Just mention it's me and just go and uh, get it. But Darwin was finishing off a, a piece for a charity giveaway that was happening at the weekend of the, this festival that we'd gone to. And Darwin, being Darwin, um, he didn't mince his words. Uh, he was incredibly uh, pissed off with me interrupting him. Um, and yeah, that's how you break the ice. What you do is you get um, a renowned comic creator to get very upset and pissed off with you and tell you to fuck off. Um, so that, 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 that will definitely do it. But there we go. Um, what I've heard, that definitely sounds like Darwin. <laughs> that sounds like Darwin, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, st- uh, when we talk about conventions, I mean, this year has just been um, an absolute, it's just been a bloodbath for um, the, the, not only the conventions themselves, but also for the community, which goes to not only see the, the talent and the, the creators and uh, publishers on the other side of the table, but also just to come together as a community. Um, it's been difficult to, um, to kind of really see the impact of what the the lack of conventions over the entire year um, has been. What was the last convention that you actually all went to? Um, I know that for the vast majority of people I've spoken to this year, it's mostly it's been Emerald at the beginning of the, around March time. What was your? Do you remember what your last convention was? It was New we York. have a distributed team, so not everyone on our team goes to every show that uh, we attend. So for Adrian and me, the last convention at which uh, we were in attendance was New York Comic Con at oh, wow. the end of, you know, the sort of relative end of the convention circuit in 2019. And we were there just two days after we had been at, at SuperCon last year. Obviously, Emerald City, which is our sort of it's it's a little strange to say that a show that's eight hours away is our home show, but it's the closest major convention to us here in Missoula. Emerald City was, you know, canceled this year, and that was the first domino to fall in the American convention scene. So, you know, we ended 
we ended our last you know convention cycle on a high note with a great success at New York Comic Con. Uh, but that's you know it's the last time we've been on a show floor. That was also our first time at New York Comic Con. That was the first time we'd gone and exhibited, and it was our last show. Uh, it's sort of strange that more than a year has passed already, um, because I feel like that that's that's one of the things that the comic book conventions uh, provide is kind of like mile markers throughout the year. These these uh these big milestones, and without them, time just sort of evaporates, <laughs> and you're just caught in this vacuum, this timeless vacuum. Um, but yeah, New York was a great, great show. And then we 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 ended up, you know, not going to Emerald City, like Damien said, because it was canceled. But it's so it's been a while. It's been a while for all of us since we've actually been able to do a show, like run a show floor and, you know, run a booth together. Yeah. And uh, conventions think- play a special role for us <clears throat> as a business that they might not for other publishers who are situated in more populated parts of the country or in areas that are more connected with the American comic scene. So, you know, I I would imagine that the folks working out of Portland are still finding occasions to spend time in the company of other comics creators. But um, for us working out of Missoula, Montana, there's not much in the way of a comic scene here. You know, we have some dear friends in town who do work in the business, but they're few and far between. And so, conventions for vault were always a singular perhaps the only way for us to have those kinds of engagements regularly with uh, other professionals and and fans in the business and so that um, everyone on the team knows how stressed and weary the logistics of a convention <laughs> makes me in particular i don't weather it well but i do miss that element of them I can't remember which member of the vault team it was. It was either Sebastian or it may even been David, but I think we had uh, someone beaming in. uh, I think it was on the Sunday after a convention. uh, They'd done the Friday and Saturday, and they'd come back, and they were just like, yeah, um, I had to come home. (laughs) It was a bit much. And, uh, yeah, convention, when I've been past your table, San Diego Comic-Con, you work them. Uh, you're always interacting. You're always engaging with fans. Always engaging with talent as well. Um, I think something that you've said in uh, a couple of interviews as well is, and certainly with uh, evidenced by the, the things that you've done at Save Thought Bubble, where you've made an effort to connect with um, a new set of talent coming forward. Um, what's been the year like in terms of the meeting of talent, or the, that lack of meeting of talent? That that kind of the, the, the missing of the interaction with upcoming uh, talent. Um, is that something that you feel is going to be missing, not just for Vault, but across uh, the industry, that uh, kind of face-to-face first introduction to yourselves with someone who wants and is driven to tell a story? From the editorial side, uh, certainly um, I miss that. I miss the opportunity to talk directly with creators about the stories that are um, – that they find most compelling at that sort of moment in time, the things they're eager to uh, bring to life. But I have to say that in the kind of um, <clears throat> absence of the face-to-face on the on the convention floor, I've I've used that time to really engage on social media and found a lot of um, I wouldn't say newer talent, but new to me um, and. 
because it's really easy for me to, you know, chat with Alex Packnadel or John Bivens, you know, or any of the creators that we've worked with multiple times that we know we're going to continue telling stories with. Um, and I think at conventions, those, you know, those are often the folks I want to talk to first, they're friends, you know, we've told stories together before and we know we're going to. So you, you kind of devote that time to those people. And in lieu of that, I've found um, myself devoting a considerable amount of time to seeking out newer talent, again, newer talent to me and uh, creating those um, relationships and it's different to do it over social media, for sure. Uh, I mean, I enjoy the face-to-face -face greatly, especially when we actually get to talk story. Um, but ultimately, I think it's been beneficial for for us and in, in, in many respects, because I've, I, particularly among artists, I found myself um, reaching out to different kind of talent pools than I had in the past. And I think you've, I think I've also seen a lot of um, newer talent find a kind of comfort in uh, being able to engage professionally over social media um, and that they might, might not have had sort of just walking up to an editor on a convention floor. Uh, and so that's been, again, really, really beneficial. So I miss the face to face enormously. And I think that um, I think that maybe if ed other editors aren't kind of putting in that time using social media as a tool to um, find different talent pools, then maybe that'll be felt sort of across the industry. It'll certainly be felt interpersonally, just not getting to see friends. You know, that that's that's always a bummer. Um, but for me, I think it's, if anything, it's just kind of improved uh, the vault's reach among talent. I've spent a lot of, a lot of hours this year um, scouting and also just engaging with newer voices that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I can imagine, I was going to say, I can imagine there's been a fair few um, hours going through uh, Instagram and Twitter, because certainly one thing that I've been really um, uh, boosted by uh, this year is the, the drive for the creators to share uh, yeah. the people that they've um, heard of, maybe they've spotted them on some other platform or whatever, just anything to just kind of get the word out. Um, everyone's just been really almost chipping in and just spreading the word about things to keep people engaged and occupied this year um, because it has been that kind of that sense of just to keep the, the, the conversation going. And like you say, keep the, the, uh, the, the, that interaction and that, that networking uh, alive. Um, in that regard, when it comes to the talent pool that you get on board uh, for Vault, um, what would you say make up the magic ingredients that make a Vault creator? Uh, someone, what, what is, what's the thing that they have? To, what's the spark that they have to bring? They have to, to have Rom B's hair, and then they're chewing. <laughs> <laughs> that's how Rom got these seven shores was was just by having that hair. That's, that's he all actually it. gave us each a single strand of his hair. A lot of hair that we've tied that around our finger, and that's how we've managed to achieve everything that we've done. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I think Alex is just saying uh, maybe it's um, 
uh, the clothes that they wear as well. I mean, he's actually turned around and said, uh, could you ask Adrian if the spectacular tablecloth color coordination was intentional, please? Um, <laughs> it was not, but I noticed it as soon as I sat down. It's the coordination that, <laughs> that makes a, a vault creator special. That's what it is. Um, so a real answer, I mean, that's I actually just how big Adrian's shoulder is. You're just... <laughs> <laughs> um, I Alex, think you should thing. know you've been held in Adrian's arms. <laughs> <laughs> I have held Alex and and Ryan as well. <laughs> wow. um, pick them both up. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think the real answer is that... Uh, um, you know, professionalism and also a sort of joy for the craft. Um, you know, one of the things that we look for are creators that want to tell daring stories. Um, you know, I think I've I've said before, it's, you know, it's better to sort of crash and burn in a glorious attempt at flight than to, you know, just kind of sit idly on the ground. And I think that's the um, that's the key ingredient. Um, if there's a passion to try to do something new in genre, uh, then then you can find a place at Vault as long as that's, you know, coupled with professionalism. Um, and I think that, you know, in the creator-owned space, uh, these are all creators, even if they're, you know, newer, this is their first book because we've debuted a lot of talent at Vault. You know, it's their story. They own it and they love it. And it they're put it, pouring everything into it to make it exist. So um, frankly, I think it's just a lot easier to find people that are dependable, you know, professionals in, in our world of publishing because it's their, it's their baby. It's their thing. They're not just going to neglect their baby, you know? And I think that that's, um, that makes that part of my job uh, quite easy. Um but really, it's the it's the daring, the desire to do something new and meaningful with the genre spaces that we, you know, operate in sci-fi and fantasy and horror with our Nightfall imprint. Um, and now with our uh, young reader imprint um, coming off the ground, Wonderbound, um, again, just uh, seeking out creative talent that understands why we are so passionate about genre and want to be um, part of that conversation, want to continue to define all of the many subgenres under sci-fi or fantasy. Um, and, you know, like I think about Black Stars Above with Lonnie Nadler and uh, Jenna Cha. And, um, you know, that book is extremely daring. And that was how Lonnie pitched it. It was like, this is, this is an ambitious book. I want to do something very ambitious and it might break me trying to make this, but I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, that I think more than anything is what I gravitate toward in creators. I, I'm trying to remember who it was that actually did this quote. Um, I, I made a note of this when I spotted this in an interview uh, in 10 years, I like to be the publisher of first resort for anyone who is serious about creating amazing science fiction and fantasy comics. Now, that, that, you, that I think that was the first resort. Uh, idiom that, is one I've yeah. used a few times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah for sure. That was three years ago. How have you changed off the timetable by seven years? 
Sorry, what was that? Uh, you, I mean, you said in ten years you'd like to be that that publisher uh, that is uh, the, the publisher of First Resort. That was a three years ago interview. How does it feel to have shaved that timetable down by seven years? Um, <laughs> well, if if that's what we've achieved, then I suppose it feels great. But you know, whenever uh, whenever I get asked a you know how does it feel uh, to have done any such thing question. I have to try to sort of situate that in the context of what our actual day-to-day work life is. And for me, um, you know, it's it's a constant process of looking at the horizon and then looking at the table. And I very much, um, very rarely do I have any occasion to look over my shoulder, you know? <laughs> so it's, you know, uh, eyes forward or eyes down and almost never eyes back. So uh, it, I suppose it feels good, but really what gets us through the day, what gets me through the day is always thinking about what we're doing right now and what we're doing, you know, a few months from now and trying to make sure those things are executed to the best of our ability. And uh, I had a thought I wanted to throw on the heels of Adrian's answer about what we look for in talent. Um, One of the things that I think is like a sort of, a characteristic shared by the strongest voices that we've published is an appreciation for the power of art made for commerce. You know, art for art's own sake is of course something we all love, but art made for commerce has this just incredible expressive power to change hearts and minds. Stories are these incredibly robust tools that we've created that can bring people together, can spread truth in these really profound ways. And when you make something profound, but you also make something that people want to purchase, you've created this tool that you can use to connect with people at a distance and through time all across the world in a really amazing way. And, you know, since he's with us uh, today, you know, Alex Pacnadel, for example, is one of the creators we work with who I think has uh, the most robust appreciation or some of the most robust appreciation for, um, you know, what you can do when you're making commercial art. And, you know, as, as a result, I think we've all seen the kind of resonant success he's been able to build in his career. Uh, I, I think the thing that's kind of uh, got me is just, I, I think I was being a little bit flippant there by just uh, giving you that, uh, that statement that it, you've shaved the, the timetable down by uh, seven years. But I think it's just been the speed, and like you say, the robustness of what you've done at Vault. Um, with the uh, the talent pool that you've gotten involved and with the books that you've been putting out. And um, I want to put some titles up onto the screen because you j- just across the board um, have put out some just amazing books. Um, and not only that, but you've got books which are coming out, um, which uh, I just got some uh, incredible talent involved. Uh, I, I think the question I want to ask then is, I mean, you turned around and said that you prefer to look forward and instead of uh, looking back, and I understand that, but which vault books uh, would you say are you each most proud of in terms of uh, the execution, the ambition, the the the, the imagination of what this, you're doing with, with the creators have done with the story? Um, I think I'll jump in here <clears throat> and say that it's impossible for me to pick my, you know, my favorite children, but I think that there are, um, there's something really uh, impactful about 
building a first launch with creators. Maybe they've done some work in anthologies or uh, you know a couple one shots, that sort of thing, but their first chance to tell a story long form in the comics medium. And we've launched a number of those titles to incredible success. You know, I think the one that sort of put us on the map, of course, was Heathen um, <clears throat> and really helped sustain our fan engagement for a long time um, and really bring a lot of readers uh, to our catalog who had that the sensibilities that would allow them to find other wonderful titles in our catalog. Um, but then books like Resonant and Finger Guns, um, she said destroy titles that uh, were a creative team's first um, first long form storytelling in the medium will always hold a special place um, in my heart because you build a, a friendship with those creators um, and you also just help, you, you see their careers begin to take off um, you see them gain confidence in their storytelling. Uh, the Their sort of tool set grows so rapidly. And as an editor, that's just, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of priceless. It's, it's sort of impossible. It's almost ineffable. Um, it's sort of impossible to articulate how much that means to me getting to launch creators um, you know, first long form storytelling, Queen of Bad Dreams obviously comes to mind. And those relationships last, um, you know, Danny Lore is one of my favorite people. Um, and Dervla is now coloring I Walk With Monsters. Um, and that to me is probably the, the most meaningful thing about my job is um, balancing a catalog of creators who um, have had their shot and deserve to have many, many, many more. And the creators that are newer and are waiting for that first break, but you know that they have everything it takes um, to execute and to tell a story that will find tens of thousands of uh, engaged readers. And so, um, yeah, all of those, those, those new debuts really hold a special place. Um, and then of course the white noise crew, uh, those guys have been, we're going to get there. We're going to get there. We're going to get <laughs> yeah, there. They've been instrumental in the, in shaping vaults catalog, um, the kind of origin story of how I, they each pitched me individually. And then I learned they were collective. It was all just kind of, uh, sort of a fairy tale but i i love them all um and hate them all for just different reasons <laughs> but um, um and uh so i think it's you know in terms of the what's most meaningful to me getting to launch um a creator's career and then also building those robust relationships that we then get to return and we start with Friendo, and then we do Giga. We start with Fearscape. We return for uh, a dark interlude, Deep Roots, and now the picture of everything else. And Ram and I have just, you know, started working on our yet unannounced new uh, new series together. And those return, in, um, like the repeat creators, the Mike Maurices of the world, they mean they mean so much to me because you learn how. Uh, each other talk about story and care about story and that that kind of robust relationship that robust creative relationship allows you 
um, to explore new areas that maybe you didn't in your first foray. So yeah, I'm rambling now, but I'll kick it over to David or Damien if they want to jump in and <laughs> save me from rambling too much. Well, I'll, tell you what, I'll, I'll ask David this because I mean, certainly when you see um, some publishers and some lineups of books, you kind of can kind of put a, a pin in a, a specific book as almost like an, this is the, um, for example, the Walking Dead era of Image. This is the Div <laughs> era of that particular uh, publisher. For Vaults, what would the books would you say that kind of like really were the stepping stones for Vaults evolution move going through? Um, I think, you know, just to echo what Adrian said, Heathen was very much the first big one. Um, that book resonated, you know, um, uh, very strongly with a lot of people. It's an incredibly good book. Um, so of course it did. Um, I think after that, um, there was Wasted Space, um, you know, was a big stepping stone in the sense that it was our first ongoing book. Um, it's still currently ongoing and it's phenomenal. Um, the Savage Shores was a big one as well. Um, and this year, almost every launch has been like successively larger than the last. Um, I think, you know, we've really reached a um, sort of a threshold where people are, are hopping on board in droves, which is, you know, what we've been aiming for, which is great. Uh, Giga this year is clearly one of the, the biggest ones. Um, and I think all of the white noise books in general um, really um, did a, a good job sort of um, illustrating what Vault is about, as did, you know, other titles like She Said Destroy, um, uh, Queen of Bad Dreams, Finger Guns, um, that kind of stuff. It's it's hard to put like a put them all into a single category because they, they are all each their own projects but they all are different in their own way. They all um, approach genre from like a really interesting angle. And I think if there is an umbrella um, that Vault has, it's that you know that our books are going to be good and they're going to be different from what you expect. And I think the audience is really looking for that kind of stuff. You know, there's, there's clearly a, a hungry you know, set of people that are just ready for these kinds of projects. Um, I think as well, like I say, the the execution and ambition of uh, Vault has been the thing that's impressed me most. When it, I mean, it's like you say, whenever I see the Vault email come through, I know that what's going to be in there is going to be worth checking out. Um, I'm curious as to what you feel and how 2020 has impacted that ambition uh, in terms of um, creators that have chosen perhaps to go for a different marketing model that they've, uh, I'm just wondering what you felt or what you feel has been the biggest impact 2020 has had in the industry, uh, not only for publishers, but for creators um, across the board. How, how has 2020 made its impact felt? It, obviously the year began with some distribution challenges, shall we say. I, I try to be <clears throat> tactful when when talking about you know our long-standing distribution partner in public they have a, a very hard job and you know for the most part they do a, they do good work there uh, i think you know they and the rest of the comics community can agree that the way the year started out was probably not for the best for anyone but something that emerged from this from my perspective and i think david might agree with this as well is that 
it was a bit of a catalyst to sort of recreate a solidarity between independent publishers and our retail partners that had waned a bit over the last decade. Uh, and so I find now as we're approaching the end of 2020, that uh, long standing efforts we've made to deepen our relationships with and support our retail partners are bearing fruit now as everyone has come to see that not just the survival, but the thriving of the medium we all love in the United States depends on that kind of uh, fruitful and engaged collaboration. And as a result, I think ind independent comics are having a, you know, a genuine moment right now. Uh, we've all seen the stratospheric sales numbers image has uh, leaked to, you know, our, our good friend Rich Johnston over the last few months. And, you know, we've seen our own sales increasing, you know, we, we beat our uh, prior number one sales record by a margin that was jaw dropping. I won't say what it was, but it was jaw dropping internally. And, you know, then chased it with a, another uh, string of, of great debuts. And so, you know, the, the sort of difficulties and ills of early 2020, notwithstanding what's struck me, you know, most clearly as we're moving, you know, we moved through Q3 and we're moving through Q4 of this year is just how excited and willing everyone who is responsible for selling comics to the American comics fan was about finding the strongest way forward. Well, I mean, we've got a question from Solicitous Megan. Uh, I'm certain David, they may want to jump in on this as well. And uh, yeah, the, the question is, uh, how have you handled COVID? Is being a smaller publisher a pro or a con in getting through it? Um, we've kind of just been doing what we've always been doing. Um, the main obstacle that we had at the beginning was uh, the diamond shutdown, which was you know an obstacle that the entire industry had to figure out what to, to do with. Um, we, um, I think... The big thing that's, I wouldn't say changed, but that we've really doubled and tripled down on is our support for retailers. Um, we, you know, when um, the shutdown occurred, Diamond had reopened back up. One of the things that we did was reduce the price of our single issues for retailers um, so that they didn't have to pay as much money and they would make more on selling vault books. Um, and that was incredibly successful. Um, not only that, they were returnable. Um, and that's something that we've we've been working with our, our retail partners on as well is is returnability. You know, making sure that you know uh, Vault is shouldering their uh, or rather our um, you know share of the risk for these things. Um, like first and foremost, you know, like we think of ourselves as a partner to retailers. You know, we're not just trying to sell to them and then walk away. Like what we're trying to do is you know work with them to sell through the books that they buy in their stores. Um, and you know, if if retailers start going under, then publishers start going under, and it's it always you know as someone who's worked in the industry on the sell side for quite a while, it like it always sort of frustrated me that uh, to see when some publishers do that, um, and it's I think really shown that like if you if you double down your support for retailers, they will in turn you know support you, and I think that is the way forward for the industry through these you know sort of problematic times when it comes to, to COVID and um, lockdowns and whatnot, you know, I think it's, it's on us to do everything that we can to make sure that they, um, they come out the other end. 
So I would say that's the biggest change, you know, is really like us um, figuring out in what ways and in what tools that we have to, you know, support retailers. I thought of supporting the uh, your creative talent as well, because um, it's all cyclical. It's all um, a way of uh, uh, keeping everyone um, creative, keeping everyone um, productive. I mean, we've got Kevin Scott, who's uh, joining us on the chat. I couldn't have asked for a better team to launch a book with uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. He does qualify that statement. <laughs> an ideal situation, no, but an ideal home for the book, yes. I mean, we've got the uh, the, the, the book up on the screen at the moment, Shadow Service, uh, with art by uh, Corin Howell and uh, colours from Triona Farrell as well. Um, I think the I'm, it's really curious that you've said that um, about the, uh, the the shifts that have happened, especially when it comes to di distribution and how you've uh, coped with that. Um, I'm really curious what you feel then is going to be the biggest shift in the industry uh, coming off this year from the perspective of an, in, of an industry publisher moving forward to 2021 and beyond. Uh, what do you feel is going to be um, the thing that's going to have the most impact in how comics are produced, uh, uh, distributed? What do you think is going to be, what is the, the biggest thing you're going to take away from the year? Well, I'm I'm notoriously cagey when it comes to prognostications. About <laughs> but there's a variable at play here that uh, maybe is sort of going unseen. And that is we've just spent a year with no multimedia adaptations of comic books getting produced. So as we move into 2021, books will necessarily have to uh, succeed or fail on their own merits. Uh, independent of whether they exist as TV shows or films. And so I think on the one hand, that may diminish the kind of publicity that people are able to build around comic books for a short period of time. But on the other hand, we're one of the only, you know, one of the only sectors of the entertainment industry that is able to continue producing rich content in the same way we always were. And so uh, moving forward, I'm hoping now this may be foolish hope, vain hope, but I'm hoping that we'll see people who are feeling um, as though their other entertainment preferences have gone stagnant for a bit, but that they come and explore what we have to offer in the comics medium. This is uh, less prognostication and more, you know, uh, arm, armchair psychologizing, but I think people are... Uh, really interested in finding whatever small safe ways they can connect um right now it's difficult it's difficult to see friends it's difficult to um feel safe in in so many different spaces that we all used to take for granted and i know one thing i look forward to every week is going to my comic book store um you know our local shop has been uh, so safe and careful and conscientious of all of its um, customers. And it's one of the places that still feels sort of ritualized and habitual and comfortable for me. I go in, I get to spend time looking at the shelf. I pick up my comics. I interact with my friends that are there at, you know, a safe distance from wearing masks. And I have a suspicion that the, um, that kind of habitual, uh, returning to a space, interacting with friends um, is going to feel more important and meaningful to 
readers and consumers of media and entertainment everywhere than it has in say the last 10 or 20 or 30 years, because suddenly there's like a premium on it. It's so different than sitting down on your couch and scrolling endlessly through Netflix to find something else to queue up. Even if you're excited about that show, you're missing the element of being able to interact with people that care about that story and going to your comic book store and picking up your books is a way, no matter how brief to do that, to connect to a community, to connect to other readers, to connect to somebody who's standing behind that counter selling you the book. Probably not because they were like, this is how I'm going to strike it rich. But instead, because they were like, this is, I love comics. I love these stories and I want to sell them to fans like you. And so, you know, I think if I've found that much solace and comfort and such a small habit and routine um, around the stories I love, I can only imagine that that's felt and shared by many others. And we're going to ride that way for a long time. And I hope that what we see is a lot of people seeing, um, you know, some of the things that we all used to take for granted, but how much fun it was to go rent a movie instead of just sit on your couch and pick one on Netflix. Comics demands that kind of engagement still. And this is a network of independently owned bookstores, one of the last kind of bastions of independently owned stores, you know, in the in the world and particularly in North America. And um, and it and feels especially good. within the entertainment business, within the entertainment business, it feels good to support that. It feels good to be building these small communities. And I think the more we articulate it and the better we articulate that, the more uh, fans and readers and creators will realize how valuable that is and be able to sustain it. So my hope is that we will all kind of feel that renewed passion for the space we get to share of going to a comic book store and finding the stories that we love. Yeah. Um, this is going to sound a bit long-winded, a little bit strange, but bear with me. Um, uh, something that I really took away from reading Watchmen when I was uh, a kid was um, the uh, section at the in episode, uh, issue 12 where um, uh, as Ozymandias is talking about um, how people are consuming things in the face of a certain global situation or a global mood um, that in the staring down the barrel of a, a nuclear winter, everyone searches for a more optimistic story. Uh, they, they look for more optimistic um, uh, con you know, things to consume. And uh, you also see flip sides of that is when we are in a kind of golden age, uh, say, for example, uh, the, the Obama years. That was interesting that um, we got a lot of dystopian stories. We got the, what, the Walking Dead. We got a lot of zombie stories, a lot of interesting kind of pushbacks in media. Um, and I've been asking this question uh, of the guests over the course of the summer, um, what you feel um, we could be seeing in 2021 in terms of tone of stories. Um, do you feel that we are going to be seeing more optimistic stories, more uh, brighter stories? Or, I mean, I, I, f I find it interesting about Giga because while that is a um, dystopian future, um, it is very much a bright, it's post-battle. It's, it's kind of like the, it's nature growing through the remnants of um, the, the landscape of the, 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 the conflict. And it is, it's still very, it is feeling very bright and optimistic in terms of the, the the characters wanting to to move forward what do you feel the stories are going to be that we're going to be uh, enjoying 
next year or moving forward. Apart from Damien, who isn't going to look into a crystal ball at all. Oh, I, I have a thought on this one. <laughs> um, I will say fair warning issue two of Giga will <laughs> will uh, maybe pull the rug out from under your feet. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> there, the, uh, the beautiful veneer does not go away, but boy, uh, is the ending going to claw the air out of your lungs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's an intense issue. Um I think, I think yes, we will see some more optimism. I actually sort of said that 2020 was our slate of hope. It was it was fascinating to me to see how many um, of our series were about hope. Uh, Engine Ward, No One's Rose, those immediately come to mind as two deeply optimistic stories. They are stories about optimism. They are about characters who remain optimistic in spite of everything, finding their way to a good end. And it wears, both of those stories wear um, their hearts on their sleeves in that regard. And there are many others in our in our catalog. I think Finger Guns, despite how um, much of an emotional roller coaster it is, is very much an optimistic book. It's about how friendship can allow you to heal uh, through trauma. Even some of our horror is impressively optimistic um, in, in its catharsis. And I think, I think that 2021 will see that continue, but I also get the sense that we're going to have a lot of creators staring issues in the eye that maybe felt insurmountable um, a year or two ago. I think uh, particularly among American creators, there was a lot of like letting out uh, a long held breath <laughs> this, this, this weekend. And um and I've gotten pitches already and, uh, you know, seen and creators circling stories that really think carefully about what it means to to what what really defines humanity when you strip away so much of the stuff that felt kind of like the performative end of humanity and also sort of felt essential to humanity, which is like interacting in public spaces. You know, we're, we've all been in these lockdowns and I think it's forced us to confront uh, these ideas. And we've got a number of books here at Vault coming next year. And I also know from talking to creators that there are a number coming at other wonderful publishers that explore those questions, really stare them in, uh, you know, eye to eye. And I think that we can expect a lot of that in the next year. I think we can expect stories that um, aren't trying to hide their agenda. They are very interested in engaging with the question of what happens to humanity as a collective when we are forced to isolate and um, kind of strip away some of the things that for so long just felt completely normal. If the, um, if the, thesis is that the the art we're going to see is in some way going to reflect the zeitgeist going to reflect what the artists are living through now um first a sort of logistical note right we won't likely see any of that art until the end of 2021 or 2022 or if it's coming from prose yeah. novelists 2023 what we'll see as we move through next year is the work that folks may have been doing in the depths of despair so <laughs> that's <laughs> that's worth noting um, Fair enough. But, you know, if if that's what we're to expect, and I, I would imagine that we are, then I think we might see some connections between the work 
being created next year and the work that we saw um, in the late 1940s and 1950s in the science fiction scene. Uh, you know, yesterday's victory by Biden and Harris was a victory in one sense, but it was also a signal in another. It was a signal that um, the work wasn't hopeless, right? It was a signal that uh, the effort could prevail. And so I think we may see a lot of fiction emerging from this moment, reflective of what Adrian was suggesting, that um, the issues are real and the work needs to be done. Um, and confronting those challenges directly in the fiction that we see in much the same way, you know, though it was a sort of oblique long run vision of it, something like Foundation did, right? Where we're looking at an author taking a, a microscope to society and trying to figure out which little pieces need to be rebuilt in which ways for, uh, for us all to have a chance. So I'm hoping uh, that that's what we get to see is work from artists that uh, celebrates and presents the fact that, you know, there is hope for the work that we all try to do outside of our art. There's hope for the work of building a, a you know, a just society together and maybe we can keep at it. Yeah. I find it interesting that we're going to be getting an adaptation of Foundation down the line pretty soon. Um, well, they cut a beautiful trailer. So yeah, we'll go, I don't yeah, know what else to say about it, but that they cut a beautiful trailer. Yeah. Um, I also find it interesting. I mean, you, you talked about um, how you feel that um, multimedia and adaptations, um, it's something that uh, for a comic um, publisher, I mean, it has been um, a, a method of connecting to a bigger audience, um, but you feel that um, this the, the current situation could allow for um, the pulling back and the, the, the looking at the source material uh, for a, a publisher. I'm really curious, I mean, we've, I, something that I have neglected to do is go through a number of the questions on the Q&A. We'll dive through those now. And one of the questions is regarding um, the, the multimedia. Um, and I'll, I'll lead into it with, um, the, uh, with Vagrant Queen. Um, it, while, I mean, it, it caused a lot of stir and a, a lot of attention and people were really excited about that series coming through, it, it didn't seem to connect with a wider audience. Why do you think it didn't quite connect with a mass audience? To my mind, I, some of that had to do with marketing elements of the show that were beyond our control. Um, and that's maybe the extent of what I can... Uh, say on that point. Fair enough. Uh, the question that came in was from Elizabeth uh, Vieira. Uh, now that a vault work has a TV show with actors, uh, will they ever make appearances at a Comic-Con? That, that, that then asked the question, when we're going to see a Comic-Con again? Um, and well, we to could, that uh, point specifically, Tim, uh, Tim Rosen is a diehard convention enthusiast. So you can expect to see him at conventions again as soon as they're um, possible and his shooting schedule has him in North America when they're occurring. So, okay. Um, questions coming in. John Lawrence is asking, uh, having only been to my local convention, HeroesCon, how different are the experiences at the various conventions across the country? Um, for Vault, uh, I mean, um, what's been, what, what can you see is the, 
the, the way that uh, audiences um, are different across the country uh, uh, approaching your books? I mean, just in terms of what we sort of sell and what people kind of gravitate to, uh, New York Comic Con is like the comic book of the big shows. That's where people come for the single issues. We moved so many single issues um, at New York Comic Con. Great show to debut a number one. Uh, at San Diego, we move a ton of trades. Um, people really love coming and collecting. I think a lot of people are flying in to San Diego and it's like a family vacation and that, um, so getting more robust books, uh, I think is something that people are after. Um, you know, I would say that the, it, it varies quite a lot regionally in what shows you go to. Um, obviously the size affects things, but just even which titles are most popular um, on our like table is totally different from region to region um, and what fans we're interacting with. And uh, in places where there's like a really robust local um, comic community, if we have any creators um, who live there and are part of that community, then you can be certain that their books are gonna sell a ton and that like their signings are gonna go off great and gonna have a ton of friends coming. and. Um, so yeah, it's pretty different from place to place. And I, you know, whenever cons start back up, I mean, if you enjoy your local con, I highly recommend going and seeing some of the others, um, because there's, there's a chance to always just like explore another fun city, but also, uh, there's definitely a different vibe to every one of the shows. In my opinion, I don't know if Damien and David agree. Chaps. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, I think each show has its own sort of personality, um, its own sort of cohort of people that, you know, attended um, in a regular fashion. Uh, the, you know, sort of after hours life is different at each of the shows too. Um, yeah, it's, you also find different, you know, um, styles of work depending on the shows that you go to. And this is kind of obvious, you know, like San Diego Comic-Con is very different from like small press expo and, um, you know, just outside of DC or, you know, TCAF in Toronto or, you know, um, MICE, the Massachusetts um, Independent Comics Expo here in Boston. Um, and that's one of the cool things about conventions is that like you can get a different experience at all of them. And it's, it's really fun. Yeah. I suppose the actually, other great thing that varies from convention to convention is the food. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, I, I've never attended Heroes Con. I don't know what there is to eat there. But I can tell you that, you know, uh, Emerald City, whenever we get to go to that again, is my favorite convention for dining because Seattle is just an absolute, absolute delight to eat out in. So, yeah, that that's one of the great benefits of going to conventions is getting to attend, uh, you know, restaurants that might otherwise be out of your your ordinary geographic ambit certainly uh, uh, great to kind of explore as well i mean we talk about san diego i mean it's kind of like what i originally pinned the uh, the podcast around uh and i'd love going to san diego because uh certainly it's it's food uh is it they, they they know what they're doing in that town so that's very cool um and indeed you've got john bivens turning around saying um and talking about the smaller convention and it's gonna hurt me uh talking about this because thought bubble is technically my local convention uh it's it was in leeds which was 10 minutes away harrogate it's more like 15 20. it's a bit of a, a little bit more of a drive but it's still my local convention so i'm gonna miss thought bubble immensely next weekend uh john bivens saying when conventions are back 
we do need a vault, a giant vault trip to uh, Thought Bubble. Um, I really loved Thought Bubble's uh, so vaults um, uh, attendance at Thought Bubble last year. Um, when you had, like you say, the white noise guys behind the table, they were doing portfolio reviews of writers and artists, and they absolutely uh, they they ran that room. Um, they, they, there was a massive line uh, all over the place just to kind of to get um, people um, work in front of these guys that uh, they know what they're doing and they could give some real creative uh, feedback to that work. Um, so I'm really excited about the way that Vault does that and the way that they kind of got that uh, conversation going. Um, let's talk about the uh, the white noise guys. Um, like I say, we've had Giga, um, but we've also had some uh, other incredible books. If anything, you could almost say that um, Vault has become a home of a vanguard of an almost second British invasion um, with the white noise guys, along with Derba Kelly, along with uh, Hassan, uh, just this um, incredible um, British talent that you've showcased. Why the Brits? Uh, what have they? What have they? What do they bring to Vault? As well as uh, you know, Cav and George Mann and uh, Paul. Um, yeah, uh, I think I don't really have a great answer for this question. <laughs> <laughs> It's been posed to me uh, in, in interviews and um, in friendly conversation. And I think it happened organically. Um, Vault was already putting out a lot of uh, titles that I think they, one, they hit really well um, in in Europe and UK and, and Ireland. And, and so I think a lot of creators uh, you know, across the pond from us, we're already reading vault titles and that got them excited about us as a new publisher. And so they invested time guys like, you know, the, the white noise crew and George and cab invested a lot of time in talking with me about our sensibilities as a publisher and how they could be a part of that, how they could, um, sort of reinforce and elevate what we were doing. And I think that sort of engagement just led to a natural kind of parade of all these incredible titles from, uh, from um, you know, a slew of British creators, um, British writers in particular, but then also, you know, European and uh, Irish um, colorists and letterers and artists. And um, I don't have a great answer. Uh, what I can say is that it happened, like I said, it happened organically through conversation, through a lot of um, uh, work on the creator's behalf, uh, trying to sort of plug into our sensibilities, learn and understand, reinforce and elevate what we were doing as a publisher. And, um, you know, as far as the white noise guys are concerned, it was really kind of fun how that all came together because they each pitched me individually and I had no idea that they were a collective um, and then they sort of revealed in like a magic trick that they were all, you know, uh, together as part of this crew. Which is like a comic booky plot in its own right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and now when I ever, whenever I have notes for one of them, I know I really have notes for all four of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if I know that if I'm giving notes to, you know, Ryan, on a dark interlude that certainly in some way they'll make it 
it over to Dan um, on, you know, the picture of everything else and they'll talk. So I'm always like keenly aware of the fact that my notes are for an audience of four very sharp <laughs> writers, <laughs> um, which is a fun bit of added pressure. Um, yeah, I think there was a sort of symbiotic thing that happened. So the retailers that embraced Vault most enthusiastically early in our history were located in, you know, two places, uh, mostly New York and the UK. And as a result, we've found ourselves working with an enormous amount of talent from New York and the UK, because these are people who've been reading our books for a year, a year and a half, two years longer than the rest of the world. And so they've been thinking about working with us for that much more time than the rest of the world. I think also, uh, uh, I don't know how you're going to take this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, certainly, you could point to um, uh, Vertigo as kind of like that umbrella and that um, the, the 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 home for uh, British voices, uh, certainly in that first British invasion. Uh, you could say that Vault is the 2018, 2017 Vertigo, or it's the current Vertigo moving forward. Um, I don't know if you'd take that as a compliment or not. Or, uh, oh, it's incredible. incredible. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it's just so a part of uh, our DNA that we didn't, we did it kind of unwittingly. <laughs> you know, David, <laughs> David and I are all such tremendous Vertigo fans that maybe we just sort of knew at a subconscious level that we had to go seek out some British creators. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. Um, uh, Elizabeth Riera is asking the question, um, and I don't know how much we can talk about this. Is there anything you can tell us about Ram V's next vault project? He's writing it. It's going to be very good. <laughs> I can say more than that. It's, um, it's, uh, it's incredibly, hopeful sci-fi despite the kind of package that it'll be presented um and which will maybe uh make people you know a bit surprised by the end of issue one or two to see how hopeful it is it is um it's a book that is very much exploring some of the themes that we were talking about earlier and um showing how communities come together around art and storytelling um music um it's so it's a hopeful though plenty there's plenty of drama <laughs> and sadness to be found um it is ultimately a hopeful story about people congregating around art uh so i think i think that's all i should say <laughs> what, what's the release timetable for that uh it'll be it'll be early next year so um i could pull up the calendar but uh it'll be yeah, start of Q2. Excellent stuff. Uh, we've also had this great little mini conversation that's been going on on the chat um, between Dan Berry and Justin Richards, who's uh, watching. Um, Dan Berry, hey, look, it's that finger guy, finger guns guy. <laughs> it's a book which I didn't put graphics together. I don't know why I missed that book out, but finger, finger guns for me has definitely been one of the highlights of uh, Vault's releases, um, uh, of Vault. Uh, the releases of the last couple of years. Uh, Justin Richards, um, I'll gladly accept that title. Uh, <laughs> so, Mr. Smeg, um, when you're signing at cons, do you have to hold yourself back from giving everyone literal finger guns? Um, and Justin goes, well, I do that anyway. So, uh, 
There you go. And uh, Solicitor of Smeg, if you told me the comic came from you giving everyone finger guns at cons, I'd be so happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just been, um, it's been great to see that book um, get the uh, success that it, it has and the, the audience that it has. Uh, Solicitor of Smeg asked the question, uh, comic books are a niche form of media. So is there a way to get the people who watch the movies and, or shows based on them but don't read comics to pick them up? I think this is a question that <laughs> the comics industry has been asking for decades. Um, is there any perspective from you guys about how you how we feel that we can get the audience that we know that comics deserve? Yeah, we have a twofold access problem in comics. On the one hand, uh, logistical access problem. Most people don't know where to buy them. You know, stop a random person on the street who isn't already a reader of comics, and they're unlikely to know where they can go to buy a comic book. Uh, they might have some inclination that they can go to the bookstore to buy graphic novels, and then they might think of the two things as entirely different, and that dovetails with the second access problem, which is conceptual. People don't think of comic books as books. They think of them as some separate other media, that is, the people who don't already read them. Everyone who reads comics knows what we're looking at are just books. They happen to have pictures on the page, but they're books, and that anyone who enjoys reading books will enjoy reading some or other comic book if you just put the right one in their hands. And I think in many respects, the sweeping success we've seen of middle grade graphic novels is going to do a lot to grow up a, a whole contingent of readers that think of these as just books. I think, um, you know, if, if there's no one else out there doing it, librarians certainly are fighting that battle on our behalf nearly every day uh, with their patrons and their boards and their donors communicating that these are books and and they're important and of uh, the same literary value as anything else with the cover and pages in between. Ultimately, I think, you know, we're still unwinding the damage that was done by McCarthyism in the 50s and, you know, other and Werther before that. Uh, and we shall, you know, we'll see whether we, whether we're able to unwind that damage completely, but I think we're witnessing, you know, uh, a resurgence of the medium right now, though, you know, that is largely targeted on formats other than the Settle Stitch comic. Any uh, other comments from uh, anyone else? I think at a very simple level, the answer is to, to put the book in somebody's hands. I've actually had a lot of success in, uh, in my life converting people to comic book readers, um, giving people books that uh, they might, they might be sort of surprised to discover they love so much. Um, and frankly, reaching outside the superhero space, as much as I love superhero comics, it can be uh, daunting and difficult. And sometimes the characters after the, you know, the slew of, uh, you know, contemporary superhero movies that were have just been you know stunning success like that's how a lot of people know those characters first now so then giving them a comic it doesn't necessarily always translate not because the comic isn't excellent just because they're accustomed to seeing a very specific portrayal of this character that they've come to love and so i think independent comics um young reader comics as damien was gesturing toward is the answer uh handing people books as if they're books um, and and encouraging them to read. You're not going to get everybody, but I know that and you know, among friends, I've 
converted many people who thought they would never read comics to now being pretty regular comic book readers. Um, so I think it's about being, you know, stubborn enough <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to demand that your friends uh, read, read the comics. It's not always the simple equation of like, oh, they love Captain America and the movies. Let me grab them a Captain America comic. Um, sometimes that can actually be the wrong sort of track. Sometimes it's like, oh, they love Captain America. So now conceptually they're aware of comic books. Uh, you know, what if I hit them with something totally surprising? Because I also know they like horror and I throw Rachel Rising in there hands and then they're hooked you know something like that that can often be the way to get somebody um i think a huge part of the sort of uh huge part of the work and shifting this burden and and you know achieving the success we're after here sits on the shoulders of people like david who do pr and marketing who are constantly you know faced with the challenge and the opportunity of getting pr and marketing outlets and engagements to interact with comics as though they're just books. So I don't know if David has any thoughts about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think the question begs like um, to be looked at on like a, a sort of a long enough time frame. Like if we're talking about the medium as a whole, you know, um, Damien already did touch how like the, the industry had essentially been kneecapped by McCarthyism and, and Werther and the comics code and all that um, in a way that it was not in other parts of the world. If you look at, you know, Japan and Europe um, in particular, um, I also think comics readership is technically growing really significantly. If you look at the rise of Dogman and the sales of manga, it's astonishing. Um, and I think those need to be sort of folded into the equation and looking at who is reading, um, you know, the, the sort of graphic medium that is comics. Um, I think a lot of the um, uh, more sort of tuned in retailers have uh, in the direct market specifically have started, you know, increasing their manga lines and their um, young readers um, sections and have found a lot of success there. I know my, my local comic shop, um, Cape and Cowell in Oakland, California has done so with tremendous success. And there's, you know, um, dozens and dozens of other retailers. Um, and I think, you know, with that in mind, we're looking at the next 10 years or so of like an aging audience that are going from Dogman into My Hero Academia into whatever the next sort of phase is for them. Whether that's going to be, you know, more manga, is it going to be, you know, vault comics? You know, I think it's going to be vault comics. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, makes sense as well. Um, I, I, it's like you say, uh, I, I, I've been really excited as well uh, by your... Uh, you your young a uh, ya um all ages line um that audience is growing um exponentially and i'm really excited to see how vault um uh, explore that space and i'm um, yeah looking forward to seeing the titles moving forward um we'll let you get off um but we'll leave your question um i know that you've been incredibly busy this year putting out some incredible books um, but I'm really curious to know what else you've been consuming, what else you've been reading, and what else you could recommend outside of the vault space. Um, what books or comics have uh, kind of caught your attention um, this year uh, that's kind of taken your mind away from the uh, all of that that's happening outside? Oh, so many. Yeah, I've just been binging comics for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, let's see. So I have loved Alienated, uh, Zai's book um, at Boom, um, with Chris Wildgoose, I think, uh, who's brilliant, brilliant artist. Um, the Department of Truth, obviously, is recent. 
um, and Martin is a, you know, we love Martin here because he did Frendo um, and he did the cover for Autumnal. Uh, Martin, so that book, The Department of Truth, has been excellent. Um, Something is Killing the Children has been a mainstay for me since it came out. Uh, Red Mother um, is another really fun boom horror book that has gotten really great traction, but I think, you know, like, I feel like something is killing the children has just been like this titan of horror over at boom. So, you know, red, the red mother maybe hasn't quite reached that same level of success, but if you're enjoying something is killing the children, I highly recommend uh, that um, if you're a horror fan, um, I've been, uh, I actually have the omnibus sitting right here on my um, <laughs> shelf. I just started into strangers in paradise, reading that whole gigantic 2000 page, uh, Tome, and then I recently read a uh, graphic novella from Self Made Hero um, called "The Smell of Starving Boys," which is like a queer western, almost horror. It's not actually horror, but there's a kind of thriller, supernatural element to it that uh, is phenomenal, and it's beautifully, beautifully um, illustrated. Uh, oh man, so many! I've got a stack just. <laughs> here that I could just go through King of Nowhere. Great. Um, yeah, I could just keep rattling on and on. Um, but uh, that's, I'll leave it there. I'll kick it over to David and Damien. So I don't just monopolize an hour of me telling about all the things I've been doing. Oh, wait, one more. Uh, Ichiro was a really cool YA uh, graphic novel that I just read about a young Japanese American um, like teenager who travels to Japan and spends time with his grandfather and kind of learns about um, the his sort of cultural uh, ancestry and his he's lost his father. His father was an American soldier, and so it talks a lot about like the shared history of looking at World War II from two different um, sides of that that conflict and it's really great and it ties into Japanese mythology. So that's another one that I really enjoyed. Now I'll shut up. Somebody oh, rescue me. <laughs> oh, that, that title again? I'm gonna have to check that out. Uh, Ichiro, I, I, I could be terribly pronouncing it. Um, I, yeah, I-C-H-I-R-O. Uh, don't take me for the pronunciation, but the spelling is correct. Yeah, just checked. <laughs> David? Um, I think blue and green. Uh, by Ram and Anand was a masterpiece. Um, I just read that. Um, I was reading the end of Sex Criminals, which was great. Um, I just picked up um, the first two volumes of Ping Pong, uh, the manga by um, Taiyo Matsumoto, who's one of my favorite creators of all time. Um, we only find them when they're dead. I really enjoyed from Boom. Um, yeah, Sai's Alienated was great. Uh, I recently caught up on Coda. Um, Sai is amazing. He's one of my favorite writers. I read uh, Providence, Alan Moore's um, big sort of magnum horror opus, which was a hell of a book. <laughs> Still digesting that one. Um, trying to think of what's on my pull list. The Hickman X-Men stuff, you know, I try to keep up with that. That's been a lot of fun. You know, he's been doing some really fun stuff over in the, the X-Verse. I've uh, been reading a lot of uh, Danny Laura's work. Danny, you know, is also a friend of Vault's. Uh, they are incredible. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Oh, uh, Jimmy Olsen, uh, Fraction and Steve Lieber was so much fun. <laughs> I binged that on the plane back here to, uh, to Boston. Um, and it was, you know, one of the best comics that came out last year, I think, or this year, rather, technically. Um, yeah, that's a good handful of what I've been going through. 
I've been diving back into size yeah like you say size barrier's work mm -hmm. uh you, you, i mean you, you gave him the the shout out there i mean i've been uh and even angelic um yeah, which yeah. was um, a, 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 an under un unrecognized piece of brilliance i love that book um hellblazer um i'm still oh yeah Hellblazer. yes it's, that's one i forgot it's just an yeah, incredible book um I, I i went back and reread undiscovered country as well over the course of the uh uh, of the summer so getting into my charles Saul scott snyder uh, area and um something which isn't my usual bag uh that texas blood uh, mm -hmm. i'm not usually into um noir um as such uh, but that really got my attention that that was a, a hell of a thing uh solicitor smeg uh, if you're into goofy sweet manga in the hunter hunter or naruto vein welcome to demon school imracoon is uh, excellent uh, and Dan Berry saying, uh, Strangers of Paradise was one of the first comics I started reading back in the 90s. That, yeah, I think a lot of people have been uh, getting into into that book. Um, did we did we miss somebody? <laughs> yes, Damien. <laughs> so Go for it. I've been, uh, I've been subscribing to the uh, book club, the, the classic book club that uh, Brian Hibbs runs out of comics experience. Uh, that's his store in San Francisco. And so we've had some, you know, really fun, uh, really fun things. So it's, it's gotten me into a reread of Hellboy, a reread of Ellen Moore's Swamp Thing. Uh, the most recent selection was Kingdom Come. And then alongside that, I've also been rereading uh, 100 Bullets. So I've been doing a bit of a classic reread lately uh, within comics. And then alongside that, I, I tend to read, you know, probably probably spend more time of my day reading prose than, you know, ideal, but I've been doing a lot of reading of political history lately and, you know, reading, uh, reading some Rick Perlstein about the emergence of the reemergence of American conservatism in the seventies. So that's been interesting. Timely. Uh, excellent stuff. Um, listen, I'm going to let you guys go. Uh, if anything, cause I know that I think David's computer is close to, Frying at this point, so uh, I, I don't know. If, uh, <laughs> sorry, losing Adrian and I have a lot of work to do in the Montana snow. So absolutely, absolutely, um, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, I hope that anyone who's been watching this, if they haven't really do uh, dived into all of the corners of what Vault is putting out um, at the moment, do it because there hasn't been a weak link in the chain so far every single book has just been uh, absolutely blowing me away and i'm certain if you're looking we'll for a, if you're looking for a place to start go to your comic shop on november 25th and pick up i walk with monsters uh, earlier we were asked to look back in our catalog and identify favorites and i i didn't do that but looking forward i walk with monsters absolutely blew me away so yeah same here it was a sounding piece of work um where is the best place for people to find out more about um, what Vault's coming up? Because um, I did pull a number of the titles from the um, the website, which is um, still looking at um, previous titles. It's not so much um, looking at the, the, the forward thinking. Uh, I think you've, you've, it's other social medias that you, you kind of are pointing people towards when it comes to uh, keeping up to date with what's happening with Vault. Where is the best place for people to go? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all three of those are great. Twitter, I think you'll get like the most kind of back and forth engagement. Facebook is probably the biggest deep dive. And then Instagram is with, where we get to show off all the 
pretty pictures. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, and let's just bring that up on uh, on the screen. And if you do want to go and check them out, um, it is the Vault Comics uh, on the social medias. It's um, well worth checking out. And like I say, the books that are coming up. Um, I mean, I have yet to read um, uh, the picture of uh, everything else, but that I'm looking forward to. Uh, but like I say, Giga is uh, at the moment one of my books of the year. Um, I'm really a, a, a fan of that, considering that by all sound, all account, issue two is just going to kind of knock me for six. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll go with that. Okay. David, Adrian, Damien, thank you so much indeed for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, um, yeah, looking forward to uh, hearing the other side of the uh, the discussion when we have the white noise guys on at the end of the month. Uh, hearing what they talk about uh, in regards to Vault. So we'll see what they say. Anything they say. It's all lies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much indeed. Take care and enjoy the rest of your, uh, your summer. Yeah, Thank you. you Leonard. Leonard. Well. Yeah, it was a Thank pleasure. You. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. So there you go. Once again, do go check out their, um, uh, their social media. Go check out and see what they're up to. Uh, the Vault Comics, uh, very much... Uh, um, uh, for myself, uh, one of the highlights of uh, the shells out there, and they are just putting out some incredible titles uh, as we speak. So there we go. Thank you very much indeed for watching that, our Vault special. Um, we have got ourselves some incredible uh, episodes coming up, and um, I want to share them with you because uh, I'm really excited about who we have got um, in the next couple of weeks uh, and also what's coming up when it comes to... Um, the, the podcast going forward because over the course of the summer um, we I wanted to kind of uh, <laughs> occupy my time throughout the course of the week uh, provide some form of uh, space for a community that would usually be going to a comic-con um, somewhere to go and somewhere to congregate so I also did the Wednesday shows during the UK lockdown uh, over the course of the summer um, as it happens here in the UK, as of last week, we are back in lockdown number two, uh, which means we are kind of really stuck with uh, kind of occupying my time. Uh, so I decided uh, that certainly for the next four weeks, uh, I am going to be going back to uh, twice weekly, uh, which means we're going to be doing uh, shows on Wednesday and Sunday. Um, this week, I think I've got a guest lined up. The, it's got to be said, it's the Wednesdays I actually don't have guests for yet. Um, I've got some conversations going and maybe some you know, some ifs and buts. Uh, Kevin Scott's turned around and uh, said he's going to look in the diary. Uh, but we've also got a couple of incidental episodes coming forward as well. So uh, let's go into um, uh, what's certainly going to be coming up over the course of the, the rest of this month, going into the beginning of next. Uh, we do have a special show that's going to be happening on Thursday, which is going to be an incidental episode with um, uh, editor-in-chief um, uh, Heather Antos, uh, who's um, – I started reading her work and her stuff with comics when she was at, at Marvel. She's now currently with Valiant Entertainment, and she is spearheading uh, what Valiant are doing uh, moving forward. I'm curious to talk to her, if anything, because um, it's a name that hasn't really been spoken when it comes to um, – uh, the, the period of uh, lockdown and the, the, uh, the summer of uh, the pandemic. Valiant have been releasing books, but um, they haven't really gotten all of the attention that maybe they should have. Let's talk to Heather about that, about her thoughts on the current uh, landscape of comics 
And um, yeah, really curious to catch up with her uh, since it's been a while since we've had her on the show. That's Heather Antos. That's this Thursday. We do have an episode on Wednesday, guest to be confirmed. Next weekend, uh, yes, we have got Scotty Young, and that has been confirmed. He is going to be joining us. Um, I spoke to uh, uh, his contact this week. It's all confirmed. Um, I was hoping that we were going to do something a little bit different with it, maybe have him do some artwork, because I know that he's not entirely comfortable with doing podcasts. Um, but as it happens, uh, he said a straightforward interview, straightforward chat. That's what we're going to do. It's 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. That's next week with Scotty Young. Uh, a name you may not recognize for the weekend after Sunday, the 22nd of November, Mike Shashini. Um, or uh, Sacchini, yeah. Um, you may not recognize his name, but you definitely recognize the site which he is the uh, editor-in-chief for, uh, and that's Den of Geek. Um, so very much like the, uh, the, the journalist episodes that we've had uh, over the course of the, the summer, just to talk about the landscape of pop culture and how it's um, had to evolve and how it's had to adapt uh, through the challenge of uh, uh, the, the 2020. So, for example, by then we may find out about uh, what's happened in terms of shifted dates, uh, certainly when it comes to Wonder Woman and also Black Widow. Uh, we already know about uh, Coming to America. We already know about Free Guy. What are we looking at for the rest of the year? Is 2020 now completely awash by the 22nd of November? We may have a slightly better sense of that. Um, so we're going to be talking to uh, Mike. Sunday the 29th, we uh, talked about it earlier, and yes, it's going to be the White Noise guys. That's uh, Alex Pacnadel, Ram V, Dan Waters, and Ryan O'Sullivan. Looking forward to talking to the guys. Um, they are a meeting of minds, and um, it's going to be cool to catch up with them. Um, do go check out the episode I did with Dan Waters as well, because uh, he showcased two upcoming books which he's got, and they're really something very special. Sunday, the 6th of December, Amanda Dybert is going to be joining us, someone who you may know from um, Wonder Woman. Uh, she's also done some uh, other work for DC as well. She's a writer. She's um, very active on social media. She's somebody who um, knows her stuff, and I'm looking forward to talking to Amanda. And then Sunday, the 13th of December, we've got um, uh, industry titan Bob Fingerman, who's going to be joining us. Um, this is something which I'm... I, I'm up for because I'm not really familiar with Bob's work. So it's always good to kind of uh, meet and uh, talk to new faces. Uh, I'm not just going to talk to people I know. Let's get into uh, some conversations and learn more about Bob Fingerman on Sunday, the 13th of December. Like I say, we do have ourselves some uh, episodes coming up. Um, let's just uh, bring the dates up for those up so at least then you know what's going on. 11th, 18th, 25th of November, and the 2nd of December, we are going to be doing a Wednesday show. So please do um, hit the notifications, hit subscribe, hit like, and uh, please do uh, kind of get the, the, the notification bell because it tells you when we're going live. Maybe we surprise you with an episode out of the blue. Uh, so uh, do jump in. Um, for example, uh, next uh, not next Saturday, but the Saturday after, uh, we may be having an incidental episode. I think actually I can confirm this, because uh, uh, if I, I think he turned around and said it's all good. Basically on the next weekend uh, is gonna be Thought Bubble weekend. So we are gonna be doing a bit of a Thought Bubble recap next week um, once uh, we've uh, spoken to uh, Scotty. Uh, but um, also, um, as part of that weekend, um, there's a whole bunch of uh, content that's been produced, generated live. Al Ewing is going to be uh, part of that. 
um, uh, creative team uh, contributing to Thoughtbubble. But he did say that he'd be up for coming on the show. Uh, on the he's ideally more for when, uh, for the weekends. Um, he knows that the Sunday is booked, so uh, he said, "How about uh, the Saturday? Saturday the twenty-first. I think we can count that as uh, an incidental episode with Al Ewing. Uh, looking forward to talking to him. So that's going to be an interesting conversation." So there you go. That's going to be us. Uh, we've got uh, Michael P. suggesting that uh, for the last episode of the year, please end the year with uh, Dan, Aaron, and Leanne. You know what? I'm I'm down with that, and I think we could have Michael on as well, just to kind of recap the year. Yeah, I'm I'm done with that. Let's let me have a look at the uh, the calendar and let's see if we can uh, do uh, a proper end of uh, end of year wrap up for uh, for uh, 2020 because heaven knows there's a lot to talk about. It's been one of those years. Okay, that's it. That's our show. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again. Thanks to the, the Vault Comic guys. They've been uh, incredibly generous with their time. Uh, do go check them out on that. Uh, sorry, the Vault Comics. Uh, on their social medias, some incredible books coming your way from that particular publisher. From myself, thanks again to our uh, Patreon supporters. I know that um, we would uh, be sharing this full episode with our Patreon supporters, but I wanted to kind of uh, really share this one with a, a bigger audience as possible. So we've done it for the full uh, episode. Back to normal next week. Uh, so uh, you will be able to see the full Scotty Young episode if you are a Patreon supporter on the Sunday. So please do head to patreon.com um, and, uh, yeah, please do uh, um, support us the best you can. For myself, do take care. Enjoy the rest of your week. Um, let's see how things play out, shall we? <laughs> okay, take care. And I will see you on Wednesday, this Wednesday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. Special guest to be confirmed. We'll see you then. Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego, is a production of The Convention Collective. Visit The Convention Collective for all of your convention news and updates. And support the podcast at patreon.com, EnglishmanSDCC.